Well, let's see a raise of hands if you remember what life was like in middle school or it used to be called junior high. Who remembers life in sixth, seventh, eighth grade? I didn't bring a picture of myself, but you can imagine me uh, even scrawnier. I was one of the scrawniest, nerdiest middle schoolers. And no one wanted to be around me, especially not my three older brothers who were in high school. And I was thinking about that yesterday because I was here working on site and I was watching groups of our middle school students all over our campus here on site for an event we do every year called Merge. And what happens with our kids' ministry from kindergarten all the way up through 12th grade is when your student or child or grandchild comes here, we get them into a group with their peers, other followers of Jesus who are in their same grade and age, and they have a mentor for their small group. So sometimes it's a high school student who's also part of our church, sometimes it's an adult, all background checked and qualified, and I'm watching these small groups of middle school boys and girls with their small group leaders all over our campus as they're exploring God's word and really learning together how the truths of Jesus help them be the best versions of themselves. And it just made my day seeing this happen on our campus. Here's a picture of some of the middle school guys. And I just love this picture because this guy probably reminds me of myself, if I'm honest. I'm not quite sure what's going on with this headband. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's a medical device. I think it just seemed like a good idea at the time. And that pretty much summarizes middle school, right? So check this out. T later today, we'll have our baptisms. We do this every year for those in the small groups who decide they want to place their faith in Christ and show that through the act of baptism. Here's a picture of one of the girls who got baptized last year. It looks like the water was cold or something. Uh, but I just love the energy and the joy. Every year we see dozens of, of our young people place their faith in Christ in a life-changing way at these merge events. And so can we just take a minute and give a round of applause to everyone who serves here. All of you who serve, all of you who serve in our kids' city, helping our, our uh, you know, zero to fifth graders, all of you who serve in student ministry with our middle and high school, all of you who give in a way that enables us to have this facility and do these things, the next generation is being trained up for Christ. And it just made my day yesterday to be on site here and see that happening. And simultaneously, a wedding was happening. And I was watching the wedding. It was beautiful because they had part of it outside and it was unseasonably warm and sunny. It was just beautiful. And they had bubbles that they were blowing and everyone had on nice suits and nice dresses. It was just this picture-perfect moment of joy and love and maybe you can recall that feeling maybe there's been a time in your life where you've been at a wedding like that and in the joy in the moment with the sunshine and bubbles and nice clothes and everything you kind of just forget about all the troubles of the world and in that moment you feel what you want your kids to feel in life what I want you to feel in life what God wants us to have in life and in eternity, and that is joy and fulfillment and peace. And I was thinking about this yesterday as I watched all the wonderful things happening on our campus, and I was thinking what a contrast to so many places out in the world right now that are so divided and broken. I thought what a contrast to Washington, D.C. this weekend where the nation is really just torn in half over deep political and social divides. And the question we're asking this weekend is, how do we live for Christ? How do we have 
a place of truth and of peace and of joy in a world that's shaking and dividing? That's the question we're asking. How can you live for Christ in a world that's not all bubbles and sunshine and rainbows and weddings, but in the real world? How can we prepare our kids to live for Christ in a world that is shaking and a world that is so divided? It's a question for us to answer as a group, as a church, and it's a question for each of us as individuals to answer. You know, I'd like to imagine that my kids will grow up in a world that will always be peaceful and perfect and safe, but the reality is they're going to face and inherit a world that is divided and shaking. Here's a few illustrations of the world our kids are going to inherit and the world that we are navigating right now. Here's a cartoonist drawing called The Flag of the Divided States of America. When I saw this in the newspaper the other day, I just thought, boy, that is, that is it right there. That's a picture of our country right now. Because the reality is, whatever political side you're on or whatever so side of a social issue you're on, half of your neighbors disagree with you. And we live in a world where half of our neighbors disagree with all of us, no matter where we fall on these different political and social things. And so how do we live for Christ in a divided world? Or if we zoom out, we realize that we're on this kind of treadmill where every few weeks or month, there's either another shooting or another terrorist attack and, and the world shakes around us. Here's an illustration that one newspaper cartoonist made after the September 11th anniversary, and this little girl asks Uncle Sam, she says, why do we place our hand over our heart to say the pledge? He responds, well, on this day, we do it to keep our hearts from breaking, and the world we live in, not only is it divided over politics and social issues, but there's times when the world shakes. There's times when it shakes here in the United States, and there's times Globally, you may recall earlier this year when North Korea was firing off missiles and threatening to fire off nuclear missiles, and the nations of the world tried to gather around to say, How do we prevent a nuclear missile being fired? There's times in our lives when the world shakes. So, how do we live for Christ in a divided world and in a shaking world? That's a question that, you know, if we're really serious about representing Christ and if we're really aware of what's going on in the world, it's a tension that we will wrestle with. How do we live for Christ in such a divided world? How do we live for Christ in a world that's shaking? Well, thankfully, we're not the first group of Christians to wrestle with this question of how to live for Christ in a shaking and divided world. In fact, as I was studying scripture to find God's answer to this question, I came across something interesting. Did you know that God himself wrestled with how to answer this question? And here's what I mean. There was one time in human history when God decided that he would take on the form of a human. He took on skin just like you and had pain just like you and breathed the same air we breathe and drank the same water. And he chose to come down into the human story to show humans the heart of God. And here's the thing. When Jesus was incarnated as fully God and fully man, he came into a world that was deeply divided. 
He came into a world where Romans and Greeks and Jews and Samaritans all had racist divisions about each other. He came into a world where slavery was a global norm. He came into a world where women and most of those cultures I cited were treated as property and had no rights. He came into an unjust and a divided world and a world that was shaking politically, a world that would continue shaking. There was a time when Jesus looked at Jerusalem where he did most of his public ministry and he wept because he saw that within decades that city would be burnt to the ground. God himself came into a divided and shaking world. So to answer this question, we can actually look to the word of God and we can see exactly how Christ would have us live in a divided and shaking world. And I wanna share that with you today. God tells us the answer to this question in the Gospel of John chapter one. In verse 14, it describes exactly how God, when he took on flesh and bone and walked among us for the purpose of showing his heart to us, how he came into a divided world. It says this, the word, that's Jesus, became flesh, just like you and me, and he made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. The people writing this, they'd seen his miracles. They'd seen him raised from the dead. The glory of the one and only son of God who came from the father, sent from heaven, and here's how he came. Full of grace. What is that? Grace is undeserved forgiveness and full of truth. That is, here's what's just, here's what's right, here's what's wrong. And as we've learned in this series, God's truth leads to freedom. Here's the map to lead you out of slavery and into a life of freedom. Now, you might have heard this verse before, but I want you to just think about the significance of this. Here's Almighty God who created the galaxies and atoms and molecules and Tyrannosaurus rexes and humpback whales and humanity. He created it all. He answers to no one. He can do whatever he chooses. He made this beautiful creation, and we know from the whole of God's word, starting in Genesis, that he didn't create cancer. He didn't create genocide and war and rape and injustice and division and hatred and murder. All those evils come from us and come from Satan, who our ancestors invited into this world. I want you to think of you spending time working on a masterpiece of a creation and you hand it over to someone for them to take care of it or manage it, and they destroy it. And then you return. You know, imagine you buy a rental house, and you pick someone to manage it, and you come back, and the house is just completely trashed. It's gonna cost more than you spent on the house to fix it back up. How would you return to that person? Would you come full of grace and truth? If I were in God's shoes, knowing the whole story of God and humanity as told in God's word, I would not have shown up in grace and truth. I would have come full of anger and wrath. I would have come, as, as some people say, taking names and kicking buttskies. You know, I, I would have been angry. I would have been mad. I would have been, what have you guys done? Why did you destroy all this? I, I told you if you make these choices, you'll mess it all up and you'll mess yourselves up. Why'd you do that? He would have had every right as God to come in that way. But instead, he came quietly, humbly, full of undeserved forgiveness, but also full of the truth. 
Christ came into this world full of grace and full of truth, not full of anger and attitude, not full of guilt and shame. I mean, this verse, this verse could read, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of anger and wrath. He could say that. He would have been justified to do that. But instead, he came full of undeserved forgiveness and saying, here's the map to set you free from your own slavery. So how do we now follow Christ in this world? Here's very simply what we're learning today. God sent us to show his grace and his truth to people he wants in heaven. Why do we exist in this world today? It's not to just survive and make it. As followers of Christ, we're on a mission. Just like God sent the Son into the world, he has sent us here for a purpose. And our purpose is more than just making it through. Our purpose is more than just hoping the next crisis will pass and we'll be okay. Our purpose is more than just making sure our kids and grandkids are taken care of even while the rest of the world falls apart. No, we're here on a mission. And our mission is for very specific people, people you know who God wants to be in heaven. And how are they going to get there? Well, the only way they're going to know God's heart is through a relationship with a follower of Christ like you who can show them God's grace, his undeserved forgiveness, and his truth that there's a standard, that there's right and wrong, that there will be a judgment someday, and that forgiveness is available to all people who turn to Christ, full of grace and truth. We're sent here on a mission. There's a verse in scripture that says that God desires, his heart is that all people would come to salvation. That's what God desires. But God also made us in his image and we have a free will and, and God allows people to choose if they want his salvation or not. Just like he allowed Adam and Eve to choose if they wanted perfection in the Garden of Eden or sin and they chose sin. And so God's heart is that everyone you know would be in heaven someday. That's what his heart is. And so as we navigate a changing world, the reality is that everyone around us is a person who God loves and wants in heaven. Every Republican, every Democrat, every conservative, every liberal, every socialist, every capitalist, every Muslim, every atheist, every person of every tribe and tongue and nation, we're all broken by sin, but we're all made in the image of God. And Christ came into this world to reconnect humanity back to God. And why, after we place our faith in Christ, why doesn't he just teleport us to heaven right away? Because there's a mission for us to continue, and that is to show his heart of grace and truth to specific neighbors, classmates, relatives of ours who God wants to be in heaven. I wonder who in your life is one specific person who God wants to be in heaven? Would you, would you picture a face in your mind or if you're taking notes, write down a name. One specific person in your life who God wants to be in heaven. Are you thinking of someone? It might be someone who is a follower of Christ right now, maybe a child or grandchild of yours, and they're on that track. And by you showing God's grace and truth, you're going to keep them in that path. Or maybe it's someone who is far from God right now. Maybe they don't believe in God right now or they hate God or they're just far from God and, and for them it'll be a miracle of God reaching out to them and them responding. Who's that person in your life 
who God wants to be in heaven, who you want to be in heaven. And as we go through this material today, I want you to be thinking of that person and praying and saying, God, would you use me to show your grace and your truth to Sally, to George, to Evie, to Allie, to some specific person who you know and love who God wants to be in heaven? Well, how can we be full of grace and truth in a world that's rapidly changing? In this series, we've been looking at what's going on in the world, where it may lead. We can't predict the future, but we see some social trends and some global trends. And in this week, we're answering the most important question, that's how do we live for Christ now in a changing and shifting and shaking world? So I wanna share with you some ways some specific things you can cling to that will help you be full of grace and truth in a rapidly changing world, full of grace and truth in a rapidly changing world. And I'll just mention these nine ways we can respond. I'll mention that they come from a book I wrote called Hope of Nations. And the reason I mention that is that I'm gonna cruise through these. And if you wanna go deeper, there's a lot more in the book. You don't need to get the book, but if you're interested in this, you can get it. Also in your notes, you'll see under each of these nine things, you'll see Bible verses. And I don't have time to open up every one of those passages of scripture. But each of these nine things we're gonna walk through, they all come from the heart of God and the word of God. And they're specific responses to cultural challenges that we'll see in our lifetimes. So by the way, if you pick the book up here, you need to know, because I've had people ask me like, John, do you make money off that? No, I don't, okay? Uh, the, the church gets the books at wholesale. It makes a dollar or two on every book, and I say, church, keep the money, okay? So I just want you to know if you're like, oh, he's up there just trying to, no. I'm trying to equip you. I'm trying to equip you to live for Christ. I want, I want to give you every tool you can, and any money that's made off of those goes to the church here. So just so you know that, I don't want to get distracted by that. But the reason there's nine of these is as I looked at how's the world changing, I wanted to know for my kids and grandkids, what are the specific challenges they'll face, and then what does the Word of God say about those? So one of the first challenges we have learned is that we now live in a post-truth world. And that is, according to Oxford Dictionaries, in 2016, they had a word of the year. And their word of the year was post-truth. Meaning, they said that America and Europe have moved to a place where truth is no longer defined by written objective standards, but truth is all about people's feelings and opinions. So one person's truth is this, another person's truth is that. And as this affects lawmaking and lawmakers and social norms, it will continue to divide the world around us. So how do we instruct our kids to live in a post-truth world? Well, according to the word of God, it's to keep them rooted in scripture. And that's the first of these nine ways that if we adopt these things, it'll keep us balanced to be full of God's grace, his undeserved forgiveness, and full of his truth. We should be, if we're full of grace and truth, we will be the most illogically forgiving, loving, patient people in the world. And at the same time, we are unapologetically committed that we believe the Bible is God's word. It's the standard for what we do and believe. And even if it's unpopular, we don't change our beliefs. We're full of grace and truth. And so remaining rooted to scripture is the first of these really nine solutions to keep us balanced in a manner that's full of both grace and truth. So in a world where truth is feeling-based, 
And more and more of our neighbors will say, well, I feel really strongly about this. And we ask why. And they say, well, I don't necessarily know why. I just know I feel really strongly about it. We'll, we'll be able to, not in a judgmental way, but in a loving way, know that what we believe isn't just because it's what we feel or what a teacher or professor told us, but because it's the heart of God. In this series, we've, I've told you guys the story of the house I had in California, how we had orange trees in the backyard when I lived in California. And these orange trees were awesome. They, they produced great fruit. And I never planted those trees. I never watered those trees. I never cared for those trees. But I just inherited the fruit that was on those trees. I don't know who planted them or watered them, but they were great. Kids would go out there. They'd fill up their red wagon with oranges. We had more oranges than we could eat. And we'd make fresh orange juice. It was awesome. And we've likened this to the society we've inherited in the United States and in nations that were predominantly Christian for the last few hundred years. That we have inherited some fruits that seem normal to us because they've always been in our backyard. So the way women are treated in our culture, while it's still not perfect, to us that's normal. But what we don't understand is in the scope of human history, women have more rights in this society than, than ever before. We don't often understand that our life expectancy is twice, two times what human life expectancy was before a couple hundred years ago. So many of these fruits, like the courts we have, the rights we have, the abolition of slavery, our ability to read, the modern universities, all these things came from people who planted seeds. And in this series, we looked at those seeds and we saw that not as opinion, but as history, the people who planted the seeds that founded those universities were looking to this word. Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale, Princeton all started as Bible seminaries to teach the Bible. And that's not my opinion. You can look it up. And so what we've kind of used as a picture in this series is there's a society that's not perfect but does have some great fruits because it once had roots that were in God's word. And we've made the parallel of First of all, a generation neglecting that and saying, yeah, that's not that important. But now, increasingly, people being trained to take out an axe and actually chop at the roots of what produced these fruits. And so I want to give you now a kind of second layer to that picture. And it's a true story of a city called Singapore, Michigan. In Singapore, Michigan, this is a real town and uh, you can see here this boat and you can see a whole bunch of lumber stacked up. Singapore had a number of mills, a couple banks, a number of hotels, and a whole bunch of homes. And um, after the Great Fire of Chicago in the late 1800s, there were actually three major fires around the Great Lakes region. And there was a whole bunch of lumber needed to rebuild those cities. So Singapore, Michigan sold off all the trees between it and Lake Michigan. If you've been to Lake Michigan, it's almost like being to the ocean. There's these big sandy beaches and there's big sand dunes. And Singapore was right between the lake and the sand dunes. There were all these trees and they chopped down the trees and they sent off the lumber. They sold it to Chicago and other cities that were rebuilding. What they didn't understand is that those trees we're acting like a barrier from the winds that come off the lake and the sand. And with the trees gone, the sand started creeping into Singapore, Michigan. And here's how one historian puts it. Without the protective tree cover, 
the winds and sands coming off Lake Michigan quickly eroded the town into ruins. Within four years, it was completely buried in sand and vacated. So here's a picture of Singapore, Michigan, as the wind off the lake and the sand from the dunes there just started to literally bury the city. So you can go there today, and it's just a giant sand dune, and you wouldn't know it unless you knew the history, but underneath the sand dune, the old hotels, the old mills, uh, the old banks, and the old homes. They cut the trees down. They didn't understand the implications of cutting the trees down. And here's the thing. I believe that as societies that are imperfect but did once look to the standard of God's word, as they turn further and further away from it, we'll see a similar effect. And here's the thing for us as parents, as grandparents, as a church. We can't control what happens in our society at large, but we can control what we do with our families and with our church. So to use the metaphor of Singapore, Michigan, we can't control if Harvard and Yale, who once were founded to teach the word of God, that they cut down all the trees around them. We can't control that. But we can control our homes and our church. And we can say we will be a people who remain true to the word of God, understanding that when we hold God's truth as our standard, it actually protects us from the winds and the storms of life. And the best way we can prepare our kids, our grandkids, the best way we can be full of grace and truth is to say we'll continue to make the word of God the standard for what we do and believe. Well, there's a second way for us to balance grace and truth in a divided and shaking world, and that's to train our young, that we will be intentional about training our young people. In other words, we're not gonna bury our heads in the sand. We're gonna be aware of what's going on and we're going to raise our kids knowing that they will go out into universities and workplaces and into a world where Christianity will increasingly be mocked and laughed at and scorned. A world where sometimes people, if they hear that you're a Christian, they assume you're bigoted and backwards and prejudiced just because they've prejudged that, ironically, okay? But it, it, that's the world that they'll inherit, whether or not we'd like to think about it. And so how do we respond? Well, we can raise them to know God's truth and to hold God's truth in a gracious and graceful way so that they're prepared to thrive for Christ in such a world. Last week, I shared with you guys that my youngest, Evie, was having a surgery. Evie spent the first three years of her life at an orphanage, and in the orphanage, they did not have great dental care. So Evie had eight teeth that the dentist knew of that he needed to do major, major work on. And because she's only four years old, the best way he said to do that was to go to a hospital, actually have an anesthesiologist knock her out for a couple hours so that he could do all the dental work and then Evie would wake up. And praise God, the surgery went great and Evie's doing great. Uh, but the nurses and the anesthesiologist warned us that when kids wake up from anesthesia, they're a little bit loopy. I mean, that's true with adults as well. But with kids, he said, when they wake up from anesthesia, you know, they can really be really weepy and almost panicky, and like they're in a panic. So here's a picture as Evie was waking up. There was about an hour where she was just moaning and crying and weeping. And it was almost like she was in a dream state, but, you know, it was sad to see. And here's a picture of Mel just holding Evie as we were just trying to comfort her during that time. And when I saw Mel holding Evie, and I had my turns holding her as well, 
I thought, you know, this is our hearts as parents, as grandparents. This is our heart for the people we love in life, even if you're not a, grand, a parent or grandparent, is that when they're hurting, we want to hold them. When they're hurting, we want to help them. And when our kids are four and six and eight, we can do this. But as they get older and older, there will be times in their lives where they hurt and we can't do this because they're either away at college or they don't want us to hug them anymore because it's not cool. Or if I'm honest, someday Evie's going to be, you know, 60 or 70 and I'm not going to be around to hug her because I'm going to be in heaven, right? We, we can't always be there like this. And so what's the best thing we can do for our kids and grandkids knowing the world they're going to live in is going to be divided and shaking. We don't like to think about it. I get that. But, but it is. So how do we prepare them for that? Well, the best thing we can do for them is make sure they have a relationship with Christ so that the Holy Spirit, who's a comforter and a counselor, lives inside them and is with them in every crisis and situation they'll go through. And the best thing we can do is train them to know that this book comes from the heart of God and it leads to freedom. It leads to genuine equality and human dignity and prosperity. And that if we train them in that, then even when we're not there to hold them, they'll have the comforter of God inside them and they'll have the word of God to guide them through decisions that we might not be around to walk them through. There's a third way for us to live full of grace and truth as a church and as families, and it's to be known for doing good. To be known for doing good. There's a book of the Bible that's written to a group of Christians who were a hated minority in their culture. Now, if you've been out on the coastal cities or if you're in university right now or if you've worked in the mainstream media where I've worked, this may sound familiar to you. They lived in a hypersexual pagan society where Christians were a despised minority. And this is the book of 1 Peter is written to Christians who live in that context. And as the world around us changes and there's times where we realize, whoa, this is what it feels like to be prejudged or hated, God has already instructed us how to respond. And there's a lot of depth and nuance to this. Um, so, I'm going to try to oversimplify here, but here's a key verse in 1 Peter 2. It says, live such good lives among the pagans. That's a good Bible word. That just means the non-Christians. Live such good lives among the people who don't believe in Jesus that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, so if you're doing your best to serve Jesus and out of the blue someone falsely accuses you of something, it's going to hurt, but it doesn't necessarily need to surprise you. That will happen in life sometimes. And even though they accuse you of doing wrong, live such a good life with your actions that they'll see your good deeds. That's actions again. And in the future, when God returns and he reveals how everything actually was, they'll glorify God and say, wow, that Jesus follower kept being good to me even when I was being a total jerk to them. And so God says, here's how you respond when you're hated or when you're mistreated in culture for your Christian beliefs, is you respond by doing good. You get a cup of coffee for that person. You do a physical act of service for that person who is not treating you the right way. The word of God, if we'll look to it, shows us here's how you live full of grace and full of truth. It doesn't come naturally to us but the Holy Spirit's in us to empower us to actually live this way. There's a fourth way that we balance grace and truth, and that is that we dignify all people 
as image bearers of God. All people, no matter what labels they put on themselves, no matter if they consider us their enemy, yes, all are broken by sin, but all are made in the image of God and so have eternal worth and value to God. This is a uniquely Christian value. We've talked in this series how most major societies in world history had a set of truth, an ideology that they said, if you disagree with us, you either go to prison or you get killed. What's unique about Christianity when it's biblical Christianity is how we treat the people who disagree with us. And one of the things as our society continues to divide is we're seeing a complete loss of dignity toward people who disagree. Because whether or not we realize it, that was a uniquely Christian value that you could disagree and be dignified about it. And we will see our neighbors increasingly treat each other in non-dignified ways. And sometimes people will behave in non-dignified ways, but we'll continue to dignify them, not because of how we feel, not because they deserve it necessarily, but because our book says they're made in the image of God. And so we'll dignify them. They're endowed by their creator with the rights that they have, not because of how we feel, but because of their creator. I was reading this last week, a concentration camp survivor, his name's Viktor Frankl. One of my favorite quotes from him, he said this, the last of the human freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. What I love about that quote is it really summarizes this reality that we can't control what our neighbors will do. We can't control what North Korea does. We can't control the global economy or American social you know, divides. We can't control that stuff. But we can control our response when those things bump into us and touch us. And so what our responsibility is as followers of Christ is to always be asking, God, how can I be full of your grace and full of your truth in this situation? And here's the thing, if we get serious about being ambassadors of grace and truth, we will have times when we struggle and say, God, in this situation, how do I be full of grace and truth? And if you find yourself struggling with that, you get an A plus, okay? Because that means you're actually making an effort and you're getting it, that we're here on a mission. And that's the next of these nine things that help us stay balanced in grace and truth is that we behave as ambassadors, we behave as ambassadors. As I mentioned, there's scriptures under each of these points. You could dig into them this afternoon or this week, even as a family, if you want to pick one a night and do family devotions around the dinner table and read these passages. The passage under this says that when sin separated humanity from God, God's here, humanity's here, sin's in the middle, Christ came to bridge the gap. And it says that followers of Christ, we are now God's reconcilers. He has entrusted to us, the church, the message of reconciliation that all can be saved through faith in Christ if they'll repent and believe. He's entrusted that message of reconciliation to us. And so we are therefore God's ambassadors. An ambassador is a diplomat who goes to a foreign culture. And, and so we balance grace and truth knowing, okay, some of my neighbors who don't believe in Jesus or God or who were raised in the church and have turned away from it they may, they may have views of God and the truth in me that are, are very negative, and I can go to them not in a defensive way, but as an ambassador behaving diplomatically 
to show them through my actions what the heart of God actually is, even as I explain unapologetically, here's what God's truth says, whether or not we like it, this is what God's truth says. We balance grace and truth as ambassadors. And the seventh on your list of nine is that we remain calm. We remain calm. This is true when there are political divisions going around. This is true if there's war, if there's economic recessions, whatever happens. Last week we learned about the principle of our daily bread that Jesus taught his followers every day to pray this very simple prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, God, you're big, you're in control of everything. You made the atoms, the molecules, the galaxies, Tyrannosaurus rexes, humpback whales, humanity. You made it all. And nothing surprises you today. And so I orient my reality not around my Facebook feed or around news headlines or around what my coworkers are saying or my kids are doing. I orient my reality around my creator who's unchanging and who's good. And I know, God, that you'll provide for me today. And so that's why we pray, give us today our daily bread. And we learn that idea of daily bread means, God, give me what I need today. And sometimes what we need today is bread. Sometimes what we need today is peace. Sometimes what we need today is freedom from anxiety. But as we understand the principle of orienting our reality around God, trusting him for our daily bread, it means we don't have to worry so much about tomorrow or five years from now because we understand that our Father is already in tomorrow, providing what we'll need tomorrow. And he's already in five years from now, providing what we'll need five years from now. And so we can, as followers of Christ, remain calm, even if the world really does shift and shake around us. And these last two have to do with our sense of mission. This is the way that Jesus lived If you think about Jesus' life, he was completely gracious and forgiving and loving. Moments where he had little children sit on his lap. Moments where he touched the lepers that no one else would touch. Moments where he dignified women and people of races who were outcasts in the culture he lived in. And he showed that God dignifies them. He was full of grace. And he also had moments where he stood up to people and he said, here's what the truth is. He was full of grace and he was full of truth. And while he was very gentle, he lived with an internal sense of invincibility. That he knew that the Father had called him to earth on a mission. And that until he had accomplished his mission, no power on earth or in hell could touch him. And you can live the same way because you've been called on the exact same mission to show the heart of the same Father. You can be gentle and gracious, but you can have an internal spinal column of steel, knowing that God has called you here on a mission, and you don't have to fear anything, because the only thing you fear is God, and he's on your side, and you live knowing, I'm invincible. Until God finishes his purpose for me on earth, I'm invincible, not because of my strength, but because of his strength to protect me and fulfill his purposes through me. And so you know, you don't have to live by fear anymore. And when the world changes around us, so much of the hatred and the anger we see around us is people are afraid. People are afraid of what's going to happen to them or happen in the world. And so they're lashing out in fear. I love the verse in Hebrews. It says that all humanity lives as slaves to the fear of death. The richest people 
They live as slaves to the fear of death. Everyone does. But it says when you place your faith in Christ, he sets you free from that slavery to the fear of death. As a follower of Christ, I know that when my body dies, I'm going to wake up in God's presence in a glorified body. And for me, the worst my eternity will ever be is right now in this world. So it only gets better. So we don't sadistically look forward to death, but we're not afraid of death. And so we go through this world on a mission, knowing until I accomplish God's purpose for me on earth, I'm invincible and I can be fearless because my father is that strong. So we're here for a purpose. God sent us to show his grace and his truth to people he wants in heaven. You guys with me about that? Awesome. I want to tell you one closing story that illustrates to me the ability to save people by staying true to the book and doing it even if it's controversial. On January 15th, 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 took off out of LaGuardia Airport in New York City. And as the plane was climbing with 155 people on board, it ran into a flock of birds. Now this happens often when planes are taking off, but these were really big birds. These were Canadian geese, like the kind we see around our ponds here. And these huge birds actually knocked out all the engines on the plane. The plane completely lost power and started going down. This plane was going to crash. It was bound to crash. The only way it could go was down. And as the pilot looks around and scans around for a place to make an emergency landing, he looks to the highways and he sees that the highways are full of cars because it's New York City. He can't land there. He looks for some land and he sees that all the land is taken up with these huge buildings because it's New York City. He can't land the plane there. And that's when he sees a river. He sees the Hudson River. And he made a split-second decision that would actually be criticized by many in the aviation industry. He decided that the only way to save the lives of the 155 people on board was to ditch the plane in a crash landing on the Hudson River. Maybe you remember the story of the miracle on the Hudson. Here's a picture of the plane after the pilot landed it on the Hudson River. And in his decision in that split second, he saved the lives of 155 people who should have died. Here's a picture of the pilot, Chelsea Solenberger, called Sully. And the thing for me, my, my best friend from high school, he's a pilot for American Airlines. And I've got so much respect for this guy because I know how hard my best friend works for American. This year, my buddy, he got shifted to a different plane and he spent nine months of this year learning the book, learning the manual, training on simulators for just the one specific plane that he'll now fly. He's flown thousands of hours in other planes, but before he flies with any passengers on this new plane, nine months of training. And so this guy with all that training, all that experience, completely unexpected, his world shakes and his world is going down. And in the moment, he knows exactly what to do as a man of the book on how to operate his airplane. And he decides he'll ditch the plane in the Hudson River and miraculously, all 155 people survived. I love this picture of one of the survivors because it reminds us that these 155 people on board, it's not just a number. Every one of them was a brother, a dad, an uncle, a mom, a grandma, a sister. Every one of them was a person like you with a job, maybe with some pets, with a life. 
And every one of them was saved because of a person who in a moment of crisis knew exactly what to do. To me, it's an inspiring picture when our world shakes, when it seems like our world's going down, to know that we've been sent here for a purpose and that if we'll stay true to the book, we'll be part of a great rescue, even in situations that seem like there's no hope. God sent us to show his grace and truth to people he wants in heaven. How will those people get to heaven? God, in his providence and plan, will use you and me and will use our church to connect that person you thought of and the person I'm thinking of to the heart of God. Our role is very simply to show them God's grace and his truth. I want to celebrate you as a church this year. So far, we know of at least 1,200 regular attenders who are new to our church because of what we're doing together as we say we're going to follow God, we're going to be on mission, we're going to balance grace and truth. We know of more than 200 people who've been baptized in a new believer's baptism, who've given their lives to Christ so far this year. There's going to be a bunch more today uh, at the merge event for middle school. More than 200 so far this year. You guys are you're doing this, so I want to encourage you. And I, I want you to know that I'm with you. And I want to ask you, are you guys with me to live this way? Will we raise our families this way? Amen. Amen. If you're with me, why don't you stand to your feet and I want to just pray for you now. Father, you came into this world, you could have come angry. You could have come in wrath. You came in grace and truth. God, we know that someday all people will answer to you and all people will spend eternity either apart from you or with you. And there's one way, one truth, and one life. Jesus, it's you. And you have appointed us here to be your ambassadors to tell our neighbors, our coworkers, our relatives that God's heart toward you is forgiveness and here's the truth that will set you free. And God, I praise you that I get to be part of a tribe that is doing this. And Lord, what we wanna declare to you now is that this is our heart to stay true to your word, to stay true to your heart. And so we pray, Lord, for those people whose names we, we wrote down and whose faces we've seen in our mind, people you want in heaven who we love, Lord, would you use us as a church and as families to show your grace and truth? Lord, would you reach out to those people, draw them to salvation, move them to respond to you with their free will, Lord, that people would be in heaven for eternity because of us and because of Connection Point. Lord, we praise you that you are doing this work. And right now, we want to worship back to you in song. And we just say, Jesus, it's your kingdom that we serve. We find our identity, our fulfillment, our purpose in you. Strengthen us now to do your work on earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.